Hello listeners, before we get started with this episode, a request to you all, NK News is running another survey about the podcast. Thank you to everyone who took part in the survey last time. We're doing another survey now to give us more clarity on ways that we can develop the podcast so it better appeals to a crowd that is not currently listening to it. So please take a couple of minutes to visit nknews.org slash survey and fill out the questions. Uh, it really would help me and the team at NK News to put out the best quality product that will help us to grow our audience and achieve the long-stated goal of getting 1% of Joe Rogan's listeners each week. All right, that said, on with the show. Podcast listeners, welcome to NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Sunday, March 26th, 2023. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. James Hammond to talk about the big dormant volcano that is Mount Pektu and science diplomacy between North Korea and other countries. But first, as always, a reminder and a request to leave a review about this episode on whatever platform you use and to share this episode with everyone you think who should hear it or who might be interested. And what's more, like and subscribe to the whole series. Second, check out nknews.org, where each day my journalist colleagues write the best North Korea-focused journalism. A subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund not only the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day, but also this podcast. Thirdly, follow nknews.org on Twitter, and me, at JackOZ. And now, to introduce my guest today, Dr. James Hammond is the director and founding member of the Mount Pektu Research Center, and is professor of geophysics based at Birkbeck University of London, you can find the Mount Pektu Research Center online at themprc.org. We'll put the link in the show notes. Welcome on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. James, you're a volcanologist. That's right. Yeah. That's a great, I like saying that. It's a good <laughs> word. Tell us about Mount Pektu as a volcano. What is its status now and when is it last believed to have had a major eruption? Yeah, so the last major eruption that we really know well was in the year 946. Okay. Um, so a thousand fifty or so years ago, there's people have suggested there's more recent eruptions, potentially even in the early twentieth century. Mm. But I think that's uh, a matter of debate. They certainly weren't weren't witnessed. The nine four six eruption, though, was probably one of the biggest in human history. Right? Wow, this is a okay. big, big eruption. So it's all not just some smoke and a few rocks and a bit of lava, but like a real massive explosion as you say yeah it's it's up there it's it's probably bigger than krakatoa wow okay that's one that most people know most of, yeah. people know it's a bit smaller than tambora which is is the biggest in human history recorded yeah. history so the ash from that would have fallen in japan it would have got up into the stratosphere so we can find it in the ice cores of greenland wow. uh, for example so you know this really is you know one of the biggest on record it's one yeah. that volcanologists have known about for a long time but because of its location it's been rather difficult to to study yes and would it have blocked out the sun for a few years created some kind of a, an extended winter yeah that's what it's, it's a little bit of an enigma that because the eruption of tambora for example mm. suddenly did that we got year without summer or a few years without summer across europe and and north america and civil unrest and everything that that led from that because mm. of the famine at that time it seems that the eruption of Bektisan didn't really have hmm. such a big climate effect. At least we haven't we haven't noticed that. The reasons for that, you know, it could be that the the combination of gases that were erupted were were not right. So right. maybe it wasn't so sulfur rich. Although we think it probably did have a lot of sulfur, 
or maybe it's because it's in the high latitude. It might have been a seasonal effect. So that's that's something that that's a little bit open to debate. Was there supposed to be a high population around the uh, the mountain when it erupted back then? I don't think so. I mean, one of the puzzles is we don't have great historical records mm. for that eruption as well. We think we can see some information in the Corio history. We yep. can see some from uh, temple records in Japan, but they're isn't much that was the, the, the eruption itself certainly isn't documented in in the way well that's um, a puzzle isn't like. it because we know that uh that the korean dynasties like to record things and and sort of china and japan too so that it's surprising there's not more of it yeah we have one record in 946 from the choreo history where they talk about the um what is it the the there was a heavenly banging of drums mm. and suddenly an eruption the size of the 946 eruption would have been heard over a huge distance. Yeah. And actually they pardoned lots of prisoners on that day. So it was clearly a big wow. event that, that, that something had happened. So we think that probably was documenting this um, eruption, but hmm. we haven't found too much more. So any, any right. listeners out there, if they've, if they've got an interest in, yeah. in uh, Korean history, would be fascinated if they find anything. Okay. Now, uh, so what is its status at the moment? Uh, Mount Pekdu, it, is it uh, simply uh, like what do you have levels of uh, of dormancy or, uh, or or latency? In a way, yeah. So what we'd look for is if what we call a volcano is in going into unrest, and this so normally with any eruption, it is preceded by some activity. Right? It could be lots of small earthquakes. Mm -hmm. There could be ground deformation. So you know the way I think about it, you, you imagine you blow up a balloon, the ground, you know, the balloon expands, right? right? A volcano does something similar huh. when magma is, is moving beneath it. We might see a change in the kind of gases that are being emitted from the volcano. At the moment, it's quiet, right? So not, not, not much is happening on the volcano. But and that's been that way for most of the last century, right? Well, I mean, so the, and kind of, I guess, the motivation why, why we started working with scientists in DPRK yeah. was about 20 years ago now, so 2002, to 2006 there was a period of unrest ah. on the volcano and that really sparked everyone's interest so they recorded all of these things um, a number of earthquakes they recorded ground deformation they recorded changes in the volcanic gases and i think that caused for example in china they certainly raised their alert level they, mm -hmm. they you know to to say we need to monitor this more carefully yeah but since 2006, it's been pretty quiet and it's, mm. it's gone back to its kind of dormant state. And is there an official prognosis from anyone that it may uh, explode in the near future or have more unrest? Or is that something that's really un unknowable? That's a really hard question to know. So all we can do is we can monitor it. Okay. Right? And the Chinese scientists do that. The Korean scientists uh, do that and look for changes in its state. Right. And the other thing we can do, and this is something we're really interested in, is understanding its history mm -hmm. in more detail right because if you know how often it erupts yep. what sort of size of eruption we know it had this one really big eruption right but is that typical you know do, do we expect to see other big eruptions or do we expect to see lots of smaller eruptions for every one big eruption we don't know those is each volcano unique in that way oh yeah very much so yeah okay they, i mean there's some fundamental processes of how volcanoes work that we can try and translate but ultimately every volcano is a bit different. Hmm. All right. Wow. Uh, there are some people who speculate, and these are probably not volcanologists, that North Korea's underground nuclear test could spark an eruption. Is this a realistic concern? 
I mean, the, the way I'd answer that, so I think the, there was a paper that came out that, that speculated on this. I'm a little bit more uh, skeptical about whether that would happen. The Chinese scientists, I think, published a paper a few years ago where they looked at the, the changes on the volcano from seismic data, from gases, from everything around all of the uh, times of the tests, and they saw no changes. Um, and equally, I don't think, you know, where we have very large earthquakes, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation that those earthquakes and the shaking from that would cause an eruption of nearby volcanoes, right? mm. if we think about Japan, uh, for example. Right. So I think it's probably very, very, very unlikely that, mm. that something like that would happen. Okay, well, that, that's, a, that's a good thing. I mean, yeah. certainly in the lead-up to... Um, if North Korea does do a seventh nuclear test this year, and if it is once again an underground one, then we shouldn't necessarily worry about uh, it immediately sparking a, a volcano uh, activity on Mount Pektu. All right. So now, how do you and the uh, the Mount Pektu uh, Research Center do research work in the DPRK? Yeah. So we've been working there now. I think we're in our twelfth year of continually working in DPRK. Mm. You know, when we with, with it, obviously with some. COVID gap, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been a, a real challenge. We've obviously not been back to, to DPRK or, or had physical engagement with our colleagues uh, since 2019. Mm. But we still communicate with them and we're still working on papers and, and things like that via, okay. via email. And they're still measuring? Um, they certainly have their instruments out. They'll be monitoring the volcano. We also work with the, the China, uh, you know, Chinese scientists as well on, on, on that side of the volcano. So we, 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 we're continuing to do the research. But, you know, the way we work is, you know, you know whatever way works, really. So we spend a lot of time in Pyongyang. We do a lot uh, via email. We obviously go to the field quite a lot and deploy instruments mm -hmm. together with our, uh, our Korean colleagues. The, um, we invite our Korean scientists, colleagues, to come and spend time with us in London. We meet in Beijing. We meet, you know, wherever we can meet and yeah. have these discussions. And, you know, that's basically, you know, our philosophy is, you know, that we, we devise these projects with our Korean friends. We collect the data with them. We analyze the data with them. We publish the data. So, you know, one of our highlights was our first publication that mm. came out in, in Science Advances in 2016 was the lead author was a DPRK scientist, oh. you know, and, and, and that's the kind of philosophy is it's, it's a collaboration right. uh, between partners. What kind of instruments do you need to, uh, to monitor and measure uh, earthquake, uh, uh, volcano activity? Yeah, well, so I'm a seismologist is my training, so I'm interested in, in measuring earthquakes. So right. And the, and the land, uh, ground deformation that you mentioned earlier, that too? Is that part of seismology? Well, that's more geodesy, ah. I think we would call that. But So there you, were, you could use GPS uh, instruments um, or satellite data. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's some equipment that's harder to deploy, whether it's because of sanctions or whether because of uh, restrictions within DPRK. So GPS would probably be one of those. Mm. And, and from the sanctioned side, there was some equipment that we wanted to take that we weren't allowed to. So, but the seismometers is what we've mainly been deploying. So we deployed a, a network of seismometers for two years. Is that a big thing? A big piece of equipment? No, it's a bit like a, a, the size of a paint pot. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, we need batteries, we need solar panels, yeah. you know, things like that to help power it. Um, but okay. ultimately, the instrument itself is about the 
the the size of a paint pot. Wow. Does North Korea lack equipment of its own? It has its own seismic network. The ones we brought were a bit more sensitive mm, um, okay. than those ones. Um, they have a what we technical, but we a kind of a wider frequency range, so we can record a, a broader spectrum of right. of signals with with the instruments that we. Used. And what about the, I know this is not your area, but the measuring of gases and monitoring of different gas uh, emissions from the volcano, is that something that we need to bring equipment in for that as well? A little bit. I mean, they have equipment, so they, they certainly monitor the hot springs on a regular basis as part of their efforts to, to monitor that. And you can do fairly basic kind of chemical analysis of the, what's coming out of the hot springs. So they, they, Where are the hot springs, by the way? There's some around the edge of the caldera wall, so around Chonji. Okay, so not all of Lake Chonji is a hot spring then. But no, no, some... there's kind of bubbling up around the edges. So some bits of it. Yeah, okay. and when it freezes over, there's little patches that, Ooh, that don't, that don't freeze because wow. of the, the nature of the, the, the hot springs. So they sample those regularly and, and, and look at the... To, to see if there's any change in that composition, right? Yep. Which might tell you that, okay, magma is maybe moving or something's happening at depth within the, in the Earth. So my image of Lake Chonji then is like a like a giant bathtub, but here and there there are uh, some hot water taps under the bar, under the surface, uh, putting in some hot water. Yeah, I guess so. And and gas is bubbling up to the the, the surface. Yeah, and, and so I think it's two or three locations around the edge of the, okay. the caldera. All right. Now, what's the state of volcanology in the DPRK? Are, are they uh, up to date with the with the science, or are they having to sort of play catch up and and learn from? From, uh, from you guys at the Mount Pector Research Center? Well, I think, I think there's an element of learning, right? Because that's, that's the nature of the collaboration, right? So, you know, one of the, the, the great things about the collaboration is we've brought some experience of working on volcanoes around the world. Mm. You know, a lot of my research is in East Africa or the Andes and, and places like this. So we've brought some of that experience in, but they've been studying Bektusan for decades, yeah. right? So is that the only the only non-extinct volcano in the DPRK? Yes. So that yeah. that is their area of focus. Yeah, you, I mean within Korea you've got Bektusan, you've got Ulongdo and Halasan, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the three kind of volcanoes. So I mean they've been studying that for decades. Right. And so we we've been learning from them and yep. trying to bring that knowledge into the international community um as well as us, you know, talking about what we've learned from from other volcanoes. And who are your different partner organizations on the ground in the DPRK? Who are you working with? So we're, we're pretty open to who we work with. So we work with the Earthquake Administration of DPRK. They're probably our main partners. Is um, that under a particular ministry? I, 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 I'm not sure okay. exactly the, the, the ins and outs of, of how that works. But we also work with the State Academy of Science. We work with Kim Il-sung University. We've worked a little bit with Kim Chek University um, as well. So... You know, we, we're more than open to any DPRK scientists who want to be involved in this project and, and, and hopefully further other projects in future. That's interesting because I, I normally hear from uh, groups that engage in the DPRK that they have one partner organization that can be quite, what's the word, territorial uh, and, and jealous about them meeting with or working with other organizations. But in your case, that's, is that not the case? No, I mean we've we've managed to build quite a wide network of uh, groups within DPRK who mm-hmm. are interested in studying the volcano. 
we're talking a bit more now around other areas of environmental science, disaster risk reduction, impacts of climate change on the peninsula, for example. And so, you know, we're now looking to broaden that even further, wow. actually. Yeah. And each time you go in, do you require a letter of, uh, of invitation from the DPRK? To get the visas, yeah, we, we will do. Uh, but that's not, not been a, a major issue with our local hosts organize all that for us. Okay. I'm just wondering if that always comes from the same hosting organization or if it, if it varies. Yeah, we have a, a there's an organization called Pintech that, that acts as a coordinator for everything that we do within DPRK. Pintech sounds like the Pyongyang Institute of Technology. No, no, it's they're set up more like an NGO. Oh, okay. Um, and it's part of their, their their focus is to bring together international and local groups around areas of uh, of specific interest. And do they also organise? Um, travel permits and permits to do whatever you have to do to get the work done? Yeah, so they, they, they act as a local coordinator for, for everything that we're doing, yeah. And is it hard to, to do science in North Korea? I get the sense more often than not that the state of the DPRK doesn't really want itself or its area or its people that it governs to be fully understood. Can you tell us a bit about the processes of doing measurements and gaining trust in that country? I mean, we've, we've found them very open. Right. To, to everything that we've wanted to do, I mean, that has a clear kind of scientific reason as mm-hmm. to why we're doing it, everything's been delivered, right? And of course, there's some discussion around that to communicate, you know, these are the scientific objectives. This is why we might need to access certain areas or, or, or do certain sort of experiments. But always it comes back with a positive response. Mm. The uh, DPRK side have been very open with the data we've collected. For example, all the seismic data we've collected is now publicly mm. available, and you know we get no complaints uh, from that side of things. So we've actually found them very open, enthusiastic wow. for international scientific collaboration, and that's why we're trying to build on this, right? You yeah. know that that trust to identify new areas probably in, in environmental science, but new areas of mutual benefit so that we can, we can expand that engagement and, and help bring that DPRK knowledge into the international community and, and vice versa. And have your DPRK partners ever expressed to you the suspicion that one of your team members might be an MI5 agent? <laughs> or MI6, sorry? No, no, not really. I mean, of course, we had to establish trust yes. in the beginning, right? And it's clear now that the trust levels are higher than they were, but we've never felt there's any um, any direct suspicion of, of those activities. No. And how long is it you've been working with them now? Is it 12 years, did you say? So yeah, our first trip was in September 2011, yeah. Okay, wow, and that was just around the time, oh, a couple of months before Kim Jong-il died? Uh, it was, yeah, that's right. Right, okay, so you've uh, more or less throughout the entire the administration of, uh, of Chairman Kim Jong-un, you've been working together with North Korea. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's it's one of the, the things, you know, if you look at all the countries around the region, there's been changes of leadership. True. There's been, you know, in all of these regions. And I think one of the real testaments to the, the, the use of the power of science as a, a, a vehicle to, yeah. to bring groups together is that despite all the turbulence and changes that have been happening on the peninsula, mm. we've had that consistent and, and uh, collaboration during that whole time. Coming back to uh, to UN sanctions or other other sanctions, 
how difficult is it to bring in the the various equipment that you need and 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 what's the process of getting a waiver been like for you yeah the sanctions sanctions is probably the biggest challenge mm. about what what we do so when we started in 2011 you know we were very naive right. <laughs> to this right we're scientists you know we're not yeah. never had to to deal with this before and i remember we got the funding and then we looked into what we needed to do from the sanctions side of things and I remember looking at the British government's website around getting export licenses and everything. And I think the website said that there was a 20-day turnaround. Now, they're not just thinking about DPRK here. This is globally okay. in terms of anyone that wants to export things. But it took us about 18 months, right? And this isn't a criticism of the UK government. I mean, right. It was just clearly that they'd never done this before. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, they had to look at everything. Wow. So now, when you say export license, I mean, it's not, you're not selling products to, to the DPRK, are you? No, no. But so we would get a temporary export license. Okay. So, so to take something there and then bring it back And again. then we have to bring that it back. That requires a temporary export license. Exactly. Okay. And a lot of people wouldn't know that. Yeah. And so some of the equipment we wanted to take. So for example, we wanted to take, uh, do some experiments that can measure the kind of conductivity of the earth. It's, mm. a, it's a technique called magnetotellurics. Um, and that's great if you're looking for magma, right? right? Because basically fluids conduct electricity uh, well, right? Rock yeah. doesn't. So you can really highlight where magma is. Right. Um, but it turned out the uh, uh, something called an induction coil, which is measures the magnetic field to very high precision. Yeah. Has a dual use purpose, right? Could so, be used to make nuclear weapons. Well, I think it. I, I think it can be used for submarine detection. I oh, think I that's see. its. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think that's its military application. So anyway, I mean, which we we learned uh, during this process. Yeah. So we weren't allowed to take that, uh, we, but then that just meant we had to, you know, go back and just think a little bit more carefully about with the equipment we could take. What can we do to yep. achieve the same scientific objectives? So, mm. so we did that. And so we got all the licenses in place and we did that. But I think the hardest thing with sanctions is it's a constantly changing um, environment. Yep. Um, and particularly around 2016, 17, that period, there was um, a lot of changes with sanctions, partic and some of that targeted directly at scientific collaboration. So we have to work quite closely, you know, I mean, we're very lucky in that we have the British Embassy in Pyongyang. Yep. And also the UK government is a, a permanent member of the Security Council. Right. Which, which gives them an insight, I think, that, that, that's quite unique. So they helped us to navigate some of that because they, they saw the value of the engagement side of what we were, were doing. And so we managed to get, or they, they kind of informed the UN Security Council at 1718 committee so that we could continue um, as all of those sanctions were evolving. Okay, so have you and your organization not had to directly liaise with the, the sanctions committee of the UN? So we do that through the uh, UK's UN mission. Ah. That's how we, we engage with them. Mm -hmm. We have had directly get licenses still from the British government. They yeah. obviously have to look at everything we do. We get um, licenses from the U.S. as well because you know any any component of equipment that has certain amount of U.S. components, you still need to get those licenses. Right. So I mean, it has been time-consuming. I think we've submitted about eighteen separate license requests over the twelve years. So 
it's it's a bureaucratic it's a and it's a challenge but you know we have a way of doing it now do you have to go back to square one and do it again each time you visit or is it something is it like a one and done type situation no we do it we have to do it again we can extend the licenses for a, a certain period yep you know but it is a temporary export license so you know if you extend it 20 years then it's not temporary anymore so no. you know there there are some restrictions there but around covid for example we've we've had to continue to extend our licenses on the hope so that everything's ready for when the borders hopefully open and we can return and do our experiments is there equipment currently there at uh, mount pector that you've brought in not right now oh, no okay. no so you'd have to bring it back in again next, next time you go yeah, so we, we had funding to do the project, which ran from 2013 to 2015. And, I mean, we continue to work on the data from that, the rocks we collected, as well as the, the seismic data. And we got a new project funded in 2019 for a 2020 f- field campaign. Ah. But obviously, um, everyone knows what's happened uh, since yeah. then. Yeah, gosh. Could you share an interesting anecdote about your time actually doing the, the measurements and, and uh, the work inside the DPRK? I could probably share many, but I think some of my favorite times has been the, you know, out in the field, mm-hmm. obviously, when we can work with our, our colleagues. I've been lucky enough to have my birthday on, on Bec du Sand. Wow. And was throwing a big party and a big barbecue and lots of blueberry wine and, and singing songs and, and everything. So Obviously that was not in a winter month in your birthday. No, no, August, end okay. of August. Ah. Yeah, so that, that was, that's been a, that was a real highlight. You know, and, and I always remember the kind of long bus journeys where everyone, without exception, is expected to sing a song on the bus yeah. to pass the time kind of thing. So we hear lots of traditional songs and... The Koreans sing a lot better than mm-hmm. uh, than us. <laughs> I did. I, I can promise you that. And that's something that that North Korea and South Korea very much have in common is that you've got to sing on the long bus trips. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Where do you stay when you're up in Mount Pe- at Mount Pekdusan? Uh, so we stay in Samjion. Um, okay, which has had a lot of recent construction, uh, as we've reported on at NK News. I'm very curious to see it. Yeah, so we we were there last in t- 2015, so oh. I'm expecting it it to look quite different when I go back. Right. Wow. That, yeah, that's almost a decade ago now. Uh, and once you you have all the, these measurements and the data, what do, what kind of science can you do with that back in Great Britain? Are you uh, doing what uh, computer modeling or uh, or running calculations and things? Yeah, so from, on the seismology side of things, what we are mainly concerned with is an imaging study. So we're trying to, a bit like a doctor uses X-ray energy mm. to image the inside of your body, we do the same using earthquake energy. So that's essentially like a sound wave traveling through the earth. Right. It, depending on what material it travels through, it goes faster or slower. Right. So if we collect enough data, mm-hmm. we can build up a kind of a 3D image of what the inside of the volcano looks like. And so we're using Earth. We can record on, on Bektisan using these instruments. We could record any earthquake anywhere that happens anywhere in the world about a magnitude six and above. And we can use that data to build an image. So that's what we've published a couple of papers on that showing that we do think there's magma beneath the volcano right. today at about a depth of six, seven kilometers below sea level. And then on the rocks side of things, we would bring those back and we would put them in, in the lab. And if we take the example of the 946 eruption, we would take some of those rocks. We can look at the composition, particularly if you, if you look at very, very small scale, you can see 
tiny little bits of melt that have been trapped as the, 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 the volcano erupted. And so you can take these and try and understand their composition and build an understanding of what pressures uh-huh. and temperatures the magma was being stored at before it erupted. Wow. So it gives you a clue as to you know, what the magmatic conditions were like before the volcano, which we can compare them with our images of what the volcano looks like uh, today. So it's like these rocks are like little time machines in a way. Exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. They give you a little kind of little time capsule yeah, yeah. Of, of what the con- pre-eruption conditions of the volcano were like. How large do these rocks have to be that you take back? So the rocks will be fairly large, but the, what we'd look for are these little melt inclusions, which are incredibly, incredibly small. Wow. Okay, <laughs> right? so they're, they're trapped within there. So you kind of crush a lot of the rock and try and find these things uh, okay. within there. So you need something bigger than a football to take back, and then you sort of break it down. And Probably take, we took about 100 kilos of rocks back with us. I think that's what we took. Yeah. Wow. It's a... That's a lot of check-in baggage there at the airport. <laughs> yeah, we ship, we ship it, but yeah. Okay. It's, it's a fair and the DPRK is okay with, with that being removed? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So we, we did it officially. I think you know, normally what we do, and we do this with any experiment around the world, is we'd make sure we duplicate the samples so that everyone has a, ah. a record of exactly what we've got and, right. and everything. And as I said, it was a collaboration. Yep. Right? So the DPRK scientists could come to the UK, they can work with us, they can see the labs, they can see where, the, where, where, where this work is being done. Are there any that have been stuck in the, in the UK since COVID? I, I mean, we have our, our collection of rocks. That, oh, I that, mean, I mean the, the North Korean scientists, are there any that have, that have gone over oh, that I haven't see. been able to come back? No, 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 no. Now, my understanding is about half of Mount Pektu lies in the territory of North Korea and the other half is in China. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, probably about two-thirds China and a third in, in DPRK. Oh, it's, it's that big. Okay, all right. So presumably Chinese scientists are also doing research on Mount Pektu. And do they have any concerns about the likelihood of an eruption in the near future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the uh, highest priority for monitoring within China in terms of their volcanoes. Wow. Right. I mean, China's not... It's not volcanic in the same way Japan is, for no. example, but they have a number of volcanoes that they're concerned about. But Bekdusan is probably the, the number one. And again, it's quiet at the moment. This isn't to, to uh, uh, alarm anyone. But they have a monitoring network on the volcano and they monitor that independently. Okay. And now let's talk about science diplomacy. How do you understand this concept and how do you make it work at the Mount Pector Research Center? Yeah, I mean, science diplomacy is a it's quite of a, a loose catch-all term yeah. um, that covers anything from kind of the engagement side of things right up to forming policies and, and and what have you. The way we, I mean, I don't the way we practice it, and I wouldn't even say we practice science diplomacy. Really, we're not diplomats in any sense of the word, right? We are scientists. We seek to engage. Yeah. Um, I think. The way that the reason the diplomats like the engagement is it builds some trust. Mm. It builds a mutual understanding in areas that are of mutual benefit that are as far away from the geopolitics as yep. they can be, right? And I think that's that's why they're valued. And if they give space further down the line that helps diffuse some tensions, then that's great. But that's not for us, right? We are mm. scientists working on on scientific problems um and and we would never try and deviate away from that because then it i don't think we'd be as effective as 
as in, in terms of the engagement if we did. Do you get advice or guidance from past or present diplomats on how to proceed or are you just figuring it out as you go? I think pretty much we just figure it out as we go. I mean, it's the nice thing about science, right, is it's a pretty common language. Yep. Right? It's easy to go in and say, okay, let's look at this volcano. Well, you know, on a fundamental level, we don't know why it's there, right? I mean, we don't even, the mechanisms that, that have caused a volcano at mm. Bengdusan, we don't understand them. Oh. Right? It's not like the volcanoes of Japan that sit on a subduction zone. It, they're, they're strange, what we call intraplate volcanoes that we we don't quite understand why they're there. Wow. Right? So, okay. to sit and so have, it's really its, its own thing. It's a sort of a sui generis uh, volcano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can, we can sit there and have a discussion about that. Yeah. And they've been thinking about those questions as well. They want to know the history of the volcano. They want to know why it's there. They want to know um, when it will next erupt. And they want to know what sort of eruption it might be, right? These are really common grounds to, to have a discussion on. And so in a way, it's quite easy because we sit there, we talk about that, we then learn about each other's cultures right. and through that process, right? But it's, it's driven by the science, which is, I think, a real benefit. But isn't it hard to disentangle the science from the geopolitics and, and other things? Because, precisely because Mount Pektu has this special place in North Korea's political mythology, right? I mean, Kim Jong-il is said to have been born there and uh, there are other you know, long... Uh, long-standing myths about uh, Tangun coming down from there and things like that. So does that figure into the scientific discussion sometimes? I, I wouldn't say it figures into the scientific discussion. I think, I think what it puts the onus is on us to be sensitive of some of those cultural issues, right? But you can apply this to any volcano around the world, right? Volcanoes are quite often intertwined with cultural aspects. If you go to Hawaii, mm-hmm. right, there's all sorts of stories about the volcano, and it's the onus is on scientists to respect that and not not be dismissive. You go to Indonesia, it's the same, mm-hmm. right? You know, all of these places have their own stories that are intertwined with the volcano, like like Dangan in in Korea. So, you know, I think we've we've learned a huge amount about the importance of Bektusan for all Koreans, right, and, and in the north, it, 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 how it's... Um, see, you see it everywhere in, in DPRK, right? You know, the picture of Bektusan is, right. is just absolutely everywhere. Well, the, 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 they even have this term, the, the Pektu bloodline, which uh, defines the, the ruling family of North Korea, right? Kim father, son, and grandfather is the Bektu bloodline. Yeah, so it's, we're sensitive of that, and we're, you know, we feel quite lucky that we've had the chance to work on it, but it doesn't interfere with the scientific discussion around what we're, what we're trying to do, but it just means we need to be uh, sensitive of, of those cultural issues. Have you been to the log cabin on, uh, secret camp up on Mount Pektu where Kim Jong-il was said to have been born? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we've been there um, as part of our trip. We, we have some downtime and we get taken to some of the, the, the sites around the around the volcano and are you like is that an area that where you can't do measurements for example is that sort of sacred in that way i don't i mean yeah I, but we don't need to right okay. i mean you know we're, we're flexible mm. about where we do our sites there's no really key outcrops i mean it's quite a wooded forested area right so yep. the, you don't see the rocks particularly nicely there's no reason why we'd need to put instruments there. So you know, it's not a, not a big issue. Now, coming back to, uh, to China uh, and North Korea, before MPRC came along, uh, 
did the volcanologists from those two countries normally get together to exchange information about Mount Pektu? I don't think there'd been a huge amount of uh, engagement. They'd met at various meetings and things in the past. But, you know, one of the things that, that we're trying to work on with our future projects, for example, is there are different histories for the volcano within DPRK and within China. And part of that is because, you know, when, it, when a volcano erupts, it doesn't distribute its deposits equally ah. all the way around the volcano. So if you're only studying part of it, yep. you'll miss the whole story. Right. right. So we, our current projects are a collaboration with China, DPRK, and us at, at MPRC so that we can bring everyone together in the field. We can, you know, so there'll be DPRK scientists hopefully working in China, Chinese scientists working in DPRK visiting these outcrops, you know, with scientists on both sides who studied it for many decades, maybe not having access to all of these areas. So I think that's hopefully something we'll, we'll, we'll work on in future. Ah, so, that's, so that kind of facilitating of academic exchange is still in the future? On that level, I mean, we have had meetings in Beijing and our science, you know, DPRK scientists have traveled to, to Beijing. We bought some Chinese scientists traveled to uh, Pyongyang. We hosted a, an international workshop back in 2016. So we have had some of that engagement. What we haven't been able to do to now, at least on the DPRK side, is get everyone together mm. in the field, which is really what we need to do right. as scientists. You know, have look at the rocks, right? You need to be standing yeah. there looking at the rocks as you're talking about them is really, really key. Now, you've, you've obviously got three people working in three different language, primary languages there. You've got uh, you know, Mandarin, Chinese, you've got North uh, Korean dialect spoken in the DPRK, and you've got English. Does that mean you've got a lot of interpreters around? Yeah, yeah, we do. Meetings? We do have a lot of in interpretation when we have these meetings, mm -hmm. but that's not unique to no. to uh, DPRK. I mean, I remember working in a lot. I worked a lot in Ethiopia, and you know, we would take uh, trans people from the university who spoke English and Amharic, but yeah. then working in Afar region of Ethiopia, they speak Afari and Amharic and no English. So you would be having lots of discussions through two or three people wow. and it's not that bad within dprk right, right we yeah, have translators who you know we can we can we can do it much more effectively so you know this isn't this isn't an uncommon problem mm. when it comes to international collaboration now are things generally pretty collegial between the volcanologists on both sides of the uh, china north korea border i'm thinking specifically because there is that bit of history that uh, in kim il song's time that he Settled the water question with China that ended up giving a whole lot more of, uh, of Mount Pekto to China than was originally believed to have been China's, at least from the North Korean side of things. Yeah, I mean, as I said, like, like scientists are not diplomats or, or, yeah. or politicians, right? So when you get scientists together, yeah, I mean, everyone gets on well and we share data and information and, and you know, everyone talks openly about what we're doing. So I think, you know, we, we did, yeah, it, it's pretty easy. And what about South Korea? South Korea, as we mentioned earlier, has Mount Hala on, on Jeju Island. Is, first of all, is Mount Hala in a similar state to Mount Pektu? Is it still potentially active? Yeah, so we would, I mean, I think Hala-san, I can't remember the exact date, but I think, the, I think it actually erupted a bit more recently than the 946 eruption. So I mm. think it was in the 11th century, I think, the last known eruption of Hala-san. So, you know, as geologists... You know, something happened in the 11th century is like yesterday. Ah, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. so for us, we, we class anything that kind of happens in the Holocene, which is kind of the last few or sort of 10 or so thousand years as being potentially 
active or, you know, mm. the, the chance to erupt again. So, yeah, I would say, you know, Halasan, Ulongdo, Bektusan, they're all worth keeping an eye on. And of course, you know, South Korea, North Korea, um, China, they do keep an eye on these, right. these things. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, Mount Pektu is a kind of a unique uh, volcano, or at least it's unlike the Japanese ones and that it's not on a, a fault line. Am I saying it right? Um, so is the Mount Hala volcano like Pektu in that way? Yeah, so Halasan, Ulongdo, and uh, Bektusan, and then even going up into China, Wudlianchi and, 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 and others, they are all what we would call intraplate Intraplate volcanoes. volcanoes. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, a bit like Hawaii is an intraplate volcano, right? So most volcanoes around the world you find on um, on a fault line, right. um, like you're saying, but it's what we call a subduction zone. Subduction zone, okay. So it's where one tectonic plate is sinking down below another one. Right. And as it sinks down, it releases water, and that you get melting from that, and you get lots of volcanoes, and that's why you get these chains of volcanoes. Right. In fact, why lots of islands exist in the first place. Yep. But... The volcanoes, like uh, on the Korean Peninsula in northeast China, they're yeah. much further back than we would normally expect to see them. They're very ah. unusual. So all of those, the volcanoes in this region, probably linked to subduction in some way, but mm -hmm. exactly how, we don't know. Okay. Then are there any international fora uh, in which specialists from North and South Korea, and maybe even China, are, have been able to get together and talk about their work in the past? Yes. So the the ones I've been involved in is like East Asia earthquake seminar series, I think, that, that have had uh, involvement in the past. And we've helped get the, some, some DPRK scientists to some, some of those meetings um, in the past. So there's certainly regional meetings. I mean, there's big international conferences yep. as well, that as long as they're located in, in places that it's possible for DPRK scientists to travel, then they can they can go to these meetings. So you know, there are opportunities out there. And it's often said by people working in other NGO areas that uh, it's very difficult to get North and South Korean scientists together for bilateral meetings. But if it's a multilateral, it's easier to do that. Is that something that you're hoping to do in the future more of, like bring uh, people together to look at uh, the, the, uh, the volcanoes on the Korean Peninsula from, from both sides of the demilitarized zone? I mean, it would be nice. It would be nice. I mean, the remit of the NPRC is international mm -hmm. engagement, right? And as you described, inter-Korean engagement is something very different yep. to that, right, from on both sides of the peninsula. So, you know, it's very clear to us that our remit's international engagement. We're happy to try and help facilitate get, uh, DPRK scientists traveling to international or regional meetings. We have had some discussion around inter-Korean engagement, but what we quickly realized is that this is a bilateral thing that needs yeah. to happen, and, and so we would kind of stick to international engagement. If that international engagement involves lots of countries and there's South Koreans and, and people from DPRK there, then you know potentially that, that's okay as long as both sides are, are happy with, with, with such a situation. And so you have a, presumably you have good relations with volcanologists here in South Korea too? Yes, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is that why you're here this time? Partly. So I've been to visit some other uh, groups in Daejeon and, and, and other places um, to have discussions about volcanoes in general. And we look to collaborate, you know, as I look to collaborate with scientists all over the world, with, with people from South Korea as well. So partly it's, it's to explore that, partly mm -hmm. is to explore with 
how we, what we're looking at now is how we can expand our science engagement with DPRK. Um, into other areas. Into other areas of environmental Empire. science. Right. So part of it is for me to understand what are the regional priorities for in environmental science. DPRK colleagues are very worried about um, the impacts of climate change, yeah. how that will impact things like uh, flooding, mm -hmm. heat waves, you know, so not just Bechdusan, but into other areas of, of disaster risk reduction. And that's obviously the same concerns across the whole peninsula and the wider region, yeah. you know, in, within China and Japan and Northeast Asia. So trying to understand some of those areas. Isn't that beyond the remit of the Mount Pector Research Center? I mean, w would you be looking to expand the work of MPRC or to sort of hand these projects off to other groups that specialize in things like climate change? Yeah, so, I mean, for my research will be probably around Bekdusan and, and, you know, and maybe like subduction within the whole East Asia region mm. is what I'm kind of interested in. So what we're looking to do is exactly what you say, is to try and use our platform, our network, use the, the trust we've established, both with the DPRK scientists, but equally with the international governments and institutions around sanctions and things, to try and help people who do want to work in these areas yeah. to engage. So yeah, my expectation is we could bring people together. Mm -hmm. They would then go off and get funding through, you know, research grants and the like so that these projects can can move forward. And obviously then we would look, you know, to help sustain the research center going forward, right? And, and, and the costs associated with that. I imagine that must be quite, uh, well, I mean, if, as your work expands, it could become quite prohibitive. In what way? Oh, just to... to costs grow with with the size of the project and the and the number of staff and things like that once once you get back into north korea yeah i mean it's it's but it's it's trying to understand exactly what we want to achieve mm. right so you know the research grants should drive the projects and fund those projects right. that might last for sort of two or three years yep. right and that that's will have be a self-contained fund so my hope is that the you know if we're looking for funding to support the day-to-day -day running of a research center I think we could probably do that on a fairly modest mm. thing because what we don't want is the research center to be funding these research projects. Ah. We want the science drives the engagement, yep. right? And I think that's one of the reasons we've had such a long track record is that everything we've done is driven by fundamental science questions, uh -huh. right? There's no mistaking what we're doing as a diplomatic project it's a science engagement project and we get funded through kind of competitive research grants mm. to do that which helps cement in everyone's mind that this is a science engagement project and i think we would want to maintain that going forward so that every project is funded on its scientific merits because i think that, that that's really important are there other groups or other organizations in in different countries doing Similar research on, on Mount Pektu? On Bektusan, not that I know of, not directly on the ground kind of uh, projects working with the DPRK. I mean, there's other researchers working on it, uh, whether it's with China or using remote sensing data or, uh, and the like, but actually doing projects and, and field work on, on the DPRK side of Bektusan, not that I know of. And the last time you were there was in 2019. Um, so when do you hope or expect to go back there again? 
Well, I think you could probably give me a better answer than I could give you, Jacko, on that one. I mean, we don't know is the, the honest answer. All right, I'm not feeling very hopeful about this year, but I could be wrong. Well, I, I'm an optimist, but we'll, we'll see. We'll just have to wait and see. And you mentioned before that you're in touch with your colleagues even now. Are they eager to get you back in there as soon as possible? I think everyone would like to you know, carry on doing what we're doing and the research. And we obviously have the projects funded and everyone was excited, you know, you know, to, to, to do those back in 2019. And I think they still are now. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think everyone's enthused, but we all just wait, um, you know, to see, see when the situation will change. And will going back after uh, three years of uh, the pandemic isolation, will that be like starting from scratch or will you be able to pick up more or less from where you left off? I think I'm hoping that we can pick up. I think my first trip would probably be, you know, to go and just meet with everyone and make sure everyone's okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, you know, there haven't been any significant changes that we need to know about or, or whatever, which, you know, obviously there. It's three years now, so yeah. so it could well, four years almost. So you know it could be. Um, so it would be to go there, talk to them, understand what it is we need to do, right? And because there are some things that face-to-face -face meetings, you yep. know, you know, really needed. So I think that would be the first thing, and then come up with a plan and think about when we can, you know, get the equipment there and how quickly we can start up the major projects again. Great. And how can people uh, stay in touch with, uh, with what the NPRC is doing? So our website is probably the, uh, the right way. I think we do have a Twitter account, but it's very, not very active. Okay. <laughs> it's driven by me. You can follow me on Twitter, which is at, at JOS Hammond. But the, the website is probably the best way. All right, which is thempRC.org, right? That's the one, yeah. Okay, well, thank you once again for coming on the show today. Dr. James Hammond from the Mount Pector Research Center. Very interesting, and I wish you uh, good luck and a speedy return to the DPRK. Thanks, Jacko. Ladies and gentlemen, that was it for the NK News podcast today. If you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arias Dare for facilitating this episode, and to our post recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson who will cut out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much. Let's do it again next time. Mm -hmm.